Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You would take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Hosea. We have uh, not been in this particular book as far as I know in a long period of time, but if you would, you might uh, turn there and uh, if some of you have a little trouble finding that, uh, if you run into Ezekiel or Daniel, just keep turning forward and uh, you'll cross this minor prophet Hosea. We'll be looking at Hosea chapter 4. This particular section of Scripture that I'll be reading is more of the, uh, if I could say it in advance, the stinging section of this particular prophetic message of this prophet. But uh, as you'll see, it directly applies, I think, to where we find ourselves in our country today. Let me read uh, the words of this prophet, starting in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 6. Hosea writes, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and deception, there is murder and stealing and adultery. People employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea. They disappear. Yet no one finds fault. And let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? That has kind of a stinging sound to it, and I'm sure as I read through those, it felt a little bit overwhelming as to what can this possibly mean for me tonight. You know, the word overwhelming is a word that I hear a lot, as a matter of fact. Uh, I, I have found people today in the world in which we live in trying to express the feelings and the heartaches that they are enduring uh, and looking and grappling for a word, select off the shelf the word overwhelmed. You know, Webster's Dictionary defines the word overwhelmed as being both a fact and a feeling. When one is overwhelmed this evening, sometimes people are overwhelmed because they are weighed upon overpoweringly by the demands that others place on their lives. Uh, you know, that's when you feel overwhelmed factually. But the word overwhelm can also just simply express a feeling, whether the facts are true or not. Uh, people can feel overwhelmed when they have this sense of panic. And oftentimes a sense of panic ensues when it just seems like the world's too big for me. I can't get my handle on it and my hands on it. Or maybe people feel or maybe you feel overwhelmed by, by the feeling of a paralyzing fear that comes upon you. When you think, think things have gotten out of control and, and, and you're afraid of what all that might mean. 
Sometimes people feel overwhelmed through a, a sense of hopeless depression. That no matter what they do, or how hard they do it, it won't make a difference. Let me ask you, do you think that Jack Crow feels overwhelmed tonight? <laughs> wonder how he must feel. Do you think after being beaten last week with a team that scored 62 points on you, and now this week you're beaten by lowly Rice University? <laughs> do you think when tomorrow comes and he gets up that A, he's excited about watching game films of Baylor, or B, he wants to cancel the entire season that remains. Which do you think is his feeling at this moment? You, th you think that he and his coaching staff are looking forward to calling up that blue chip recruit in North Carolina or Texas or Florida and telling him how great it is to play for the University of Arkansas? No. He'll have to battle those overwhelming feelings every step of the way for the rest of the season, won't he? You know, Jack Crow's not the only one who's overwhelmed, though. You know, sometimes I feel overwhelmed. And uh, not so much because of just personal problems. And maybe tonight you're not feeling overwhelmed because of some monstrous personal problem, but maybe it's just society in general. I find a lot of people feeling that way just because of the world and the times in which we live. You know, I feel overwhelmed when I, when I look at this incredible, potent budget deficit and then compare that with an impotent government. That overwhelms me. I feel overwhelmed when I think of that devastating statistic that just came out that six out of every ten children born this year in 1990 will grow up in a single-parent home by the time they're 18. That overwhelms me. I feel overwhelmed when I look at our struggling school situation. And the way it tends to fracture families and confuse the community and the neighborhoods, that, that overwhelms me. And what it's done to my own family with four children. You know, I feel overwhelmed when I think about the fact of, uh, uh, of the newspapers when I read this last week in the Los Angeles Times. I, I was turning through it and I came across the religious page. Two pages of the religious section and on it were more advertisements for cults than churches. That overwhelms me. I feel overwhelmed when I read about the ethical schizophrenia that has swept over our land today and is exemplified in example after example. You don't have to go very far to, to see the, 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 the mixture of thoughts and philosophies that create all kinds of, of, of hodgepodge of ideas. And then they become terrifying realities. This last week I read of a father who was dying of kidney failure. Uh, and during the course of that illness, uh, he had his 16-year-old daughter artificially inseminated. And then at the seventh month of that daughter's pregnancy, with the help of their physician, that baby, that unborn child, was taken by a cesarean section, and its kidneys were removed and implanted in the father. And then the baby was left in a room to die of uremic poisoning. You know, when I read something like that, I think, I've read of other generations like that. I've, uh, I've read of other times like that and other barbaric cultures, but that's mine we're talking about. That has a way of overwhelming me. Or the statistic that says that 
Most Americans see abortion, when asked directly, see abortion as the, the taking of a human life. And yet that same percentage of Americans will vote to keep the right to have an abortion. That seems confusing to me. That doesn't seem to make sense in the world in which I live. Or as I read about the ACLU's position on child pornography, this, this giant organization that spends hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend, quote, free speech. And not long ago, Barry Lynn, their representative, stood before the Attorney General and made this statement on child pornography. He said, the sale and distribution of child pornography, once it is in existence, should not be prohibited by law. Anyone who gains access to such materials should be free to market them at will. We're talking about children. That makes no sense to me. That, that gives me these feelings of being overpowered by the tidal waves of my culture. It seems like ethical insanity. And, and, and all of a sudden, in these last few months, it has just dawned on me, especially as I was reading through the book of Hosea, that I no longer live in the land of the free and the brave. I live in an evil generation. And I need to think hard about what that means. Well, if you'll permit me tonight, we're going to talk about that a little bit. It won't always be exciting. and It might even be a little depressing at points. But rather than turn our face and avoid these realities, it would be good for us to immerse ourselves in them for a moment. Recently, I ran across the following article written by ethicist Michael Josephson. He is the president of a nonprofit institute of ethics out of uh, Marina del Rey, California. And uh, in this article that I read, he was talking about today's young people, those between 18 and 30. He, he entitled it, Today's Young People, Tomorrow's Leaders. And in it, it wasn't so much of just a, a dialogue on all his research, but it was more just a candid personal address that was in the Los Angeles Times. Here's what he said. Last week I found myself on television and radio interview shows talking about the Institute of Ethics report entitled The Ethics of American Youth, or rather The Absence of Ethics, in the current generation of 18 to 30-year-olds. My dire pronouncements on the moral decay of young Americans sounded almost too strong even to me, a product of the youth-reverent non-judgmental 60s. Surprisingly, according to the people who responded, my indictment wasn't strong enough. The Institute's 80-page report, which synthesizes dozens of studies, original interviews, and other data, labels a large segment of the 20-something generation as the, quote, I deserve it, or as he says, the IDIs. Their ideology is exceptionally and dangerously self-centered, preoccupied with personal needs, wants, don't wants, and rights. The IDI worldview results in a greater willingness to abandon traditional ethical restraints in the pursuit of success, comfort, or personal goals. Thus, IDIs are more likely to lie, cheat, and engage in irresponsible behavior when it suits their purposes. IDIs act as if they need whatever they want and deserve whatever they need, as if winning is a basic right. Strong words, and I would not have been comfortable with them a year ago, but I had just emerged from a mountain of studies about the operative values and behaviors of this generation. 
Expecting a skeptical or defensive response, I had girded myself with solid evidence leading inescapably to the report's conclusion that unprecedented proportions of today's young generation had severed themselves from traditional moral anchors of American society. Anchors such as honesty and respect for others, personal responsibility, and civic duty. When we went public, almost no one was concerned with the evidence, though. The data on massive cheating, resume fraud, assaults on teachers, venereal disease, pregnancies, and materialisms, callers from all over the country agreed with these conclusions at once and told stories confirming our findings. In this system, ethics is for wimps. Honesty is not always the best policy, and cheaters prosper. The problem of deteriorating ethics is by no means confined to the young, but this generation is poised before our society like an invading army with values and habits that are likely to make things worse. Whether they work as bus drivers or bankers, their ethical laxity will cause significant future harm. Something has got to be done, for if we don't, our society will more and more become a moral slum. Well, that's a little bit overwhelming to read, isn't it? When I was thinking of some way to pull myself up from that, I couldn't help but think of the cartoon that I saw this week. Uh, I am, and uh, probably it says something about my demented personality, a follower of the far side. Um, but I, I saw a cartoon by the far side, Gary Larson, and it pictured, I think, this overwhelming feeling I have when I go through data like that. Uh, the picture that he drew was of that of a, a, a big dinosaur standing at a podium in a lecture hall with all these crazy-looking dinosaurs out in the audience listening very intently to what he had to say. And the, the dinosaur at the podium said this. He said, gentlemen, the picture is pretty bleak. The climates are changing. The mammals are taking over. And we, we have the size brain of a walnut. <laughs> That's pretty bleak, isn't it? That's what you call being overwhelmed. And uh, I have to admit, I get overwhelmed at times. Uh, but I come to the book of Hosea, and I come to this chapter, and suddenly I find a guy who I can identify with. A guy who's feeling some of the things I'm feeling, though he is led by the Lord here, I'm sure Hosea was certainly feeling overwhelmed in 700 B.C. Talk about a guy who was on the outside of things. Talk about a guy who people had probably put on the fringe. This guy was a minor prophet. And by minor prophet, I'm not talking about his biblical classification in the Bible. I'm talking about he was minor in the eyes of his people. That's how people thought about Hosea. He was pitifully out of step with the times. His message was not only unwelcomed, his message was unwanted. You see, if you knew about the people of this day, his people had worked hard for several generations to build up their nation. And now they were tasting in full force the fruit of their labor. They were a prosperous nation. They were a nation of plenty. They were a nation of wealth and security. I mean, it was time for people to enjoy what they had done and to do what they want whenever they wanted to do it. No, oh, by the way, there is one other characteristic of this 
nation. They were also morally bankrupt. And they thought that they could effectively put their prosperity and their immorality together and enjoy it forever. So God sent this prophet, Hosea, and he said, it won't mix, guys, and it won't last for very long. And so the people had put Hosea kind of on the sidelines of society. That's where he stood, but nevertheless, he wrote these words about his country and where they were headed. And I think it is an excellent and relevant analysis of American culture today. Well, I hope you study the whole book this week. But let's take the next few moments and kind of gather around this prophet and go back through these verses and break them apart so we can understand them a little bit better. Let's look back at verse 1. He, he, he starts off by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then he says, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. I, I like what the Living Bible says, and I think it fits well in our lawsuit crazy world. Uh, actually, what this is, it's an indictment. It's a legal lawsuit. And the Living Bible puts it that way. It says, for the Lord has filed a lawsuit against the people of Israel. And this is the summons that's being presented here. And what is this lawsuit? Well, it falls down into five very neat categories. First of all, the first part is the cause of the lawsuit. Notice there, this lawsuit is filed because there is no faithfulness or kindness in the land. Now, before we move off those two words, let's, let's stop there and pitch our tent for just a moment because both those words are very important. They're very rich in meaning, by the way, and no Bible fully captures what they actually say in Hebrew. First word it says is faithfulness. If you've got a King James Bible, it won't say faithfulness, it'll say truth. What this word is addressing, it's addressing people who have discern the difference between truth and error. It's very clear in their mind. And because it's very clear, they then go on and choose to consistently and faithfully, that's why the word in my Bible is faithful, to consistently and faithfully and practically live out that truth in their lives. That's what he's talking about here. Truth in life. Living in the truth. Maybe a good way of translating it is practical, righteous integrity. That's what the people had forsaken. You know, I think it's interesting that this year, President Smith of Yale University, when he gathered all the freshmen, can you imagine all these incredibly bright kids from all over our land? He gathered them, gathered them together there at Yale University, and he gave them an address welcoming them to Yale. His address was entitled, Living in Truth. And let me just give you one excerpt from that address. Pretend you're a Yaley for a moment. Here's what he said. A commitment to truth will deny you the dark pleasures of losing your autonomy in the herd. A commitment to truth will deny you the pleasure of losing your autonomy to the herd. Of just gently flowing downstream without any thought, just thinking life can go on in the comfort zone. A commitment to truth sees through that kind of fantasy. Israel was living in that kind of truth, uh, kind of fantasy. They had sacrificed their faithfulness, their integrity to the dark pleasures of the herd. 
And because of that, there was no practical, righteous integrity. Now look at the second word. The second word is kindness. It's also a very rich Hebrew word. Uh, some of your Bibles might have mercy. Some of them might have love. It's speaking of an individual who, possessing all kinds of resources, doesn't clutch those resources greedily for himself, but is willing to share those resources, and in particular, share them with people of a lesser estate. In other words, it is generosity. Now, you know, if you think about it, any vibrant, healthy, powerful society has these two twin attributes standing as towers over their culture. Integrity and generosity. You know, America was once like that. Israel was once like that, but no longer. Rather than being and living a lifestyle of giving to others, helping others, now what Hosea says is they help only themselves over and over again. Now why did they do that? How did they come to that estate? Well, the next line says it's because there is no knowledge of God in the land. Now we're not talking about just knowing God or believing there is a God. We're talking about an experiential relationship with God, like Allison talked about here tonight as she was being baptized. That's gone. But here's what I want you to hear. And here's what Hosea was trying to get across to the people of his day. Knowing God and integrity and generosity go hand in hand. One produces the other. And proportionately to the loss of the knowledge of God in a society, you can also follow in equal amounts the loss of integrity and the loss of mercy and kindness. Does that apply to us today? <laughs> can you make an application to where you and I are in the country in which we live? Could there be a graph that shows in the life of the United States of America the descending understanding of who God is and the ascending value of selfishness and violence. Well, that's the first part of the lawsuit. That's why God says, I've got this, I filed this lawsuit against you people. Now, the second part that follows in verse 2 says, what replaced those things? You see, there was a vacuum. The loss of the knowledge of God, the loss of integrity, the loss of kindness. But a culture doesn't live in a vacuum. And so the void fillers were the things that are found in verse 2. Swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. It says they employ violence so that, and the Living Bible says, so that one murder follows another murder. That's Israel. That's also America. You know, if I might draw your attention back to uh, one of those descriptions, the word deception where there's fraud and deception in the world. You know, that has gone even to the place that it's very difficult sometimes for me to even trust the statistics that I read. Uh, some of you know when I did a marriage series a number of months back, I used the fact when we were talking about the traditional family that uh, I mentioned that from the resources that I got, Time Magazine, uh, Megatrends, uh, some of the congressional hearings, they had purported that 7% of American families now comprise what used to be the traditional family, you know, with a, a dad who works and a mom who stays at home and two kids. And uh, many people have used that statistic over and over again to lambast the fact that we need to quit 
playing around with the fact that, that, that we need to go back to the traditional family. It's dead. It's extinct. There's only 7%. We need more money for daycare, more this, more that, based on that statistic. And I believed it because I read it in so many sources. But it's a lie. Recently, Gary Bauer, who worked with the Reagan administration and now heads the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., he went back and examined the statistics at the U.S. Department of Labor. You know what he found? He found that that statistic meant that you have a dad who works and a mom who stays at home and there are two children, a boy and a girl. That comprises 7% of the American families. But the dad who works and the mom who stays at home, like in our home, and four children, that's not a traditional family. Or a, mom, a dad who works and a mom who stays at home and there's no children, that's not a traditional family either. That is not a statistic. That's propaganda. That's deception. He also went on to find that if you took the number of women who stayed at home and whose husbands worked and gave their primary time to their children, it comprised 41% of all women in America. And on top of that, the number of women who just work less than half-time, part-time, and give their primary attention to their children, that comprises another 20% of American families. So that, in my understanding of the traditional family, it would comprise, in America today, 61% of households. That is an unbelievable difference, isn't it? Does that not change your whole perspective on things? And yet, you will read, I bet, in the next few weeks, or you will see on Phil Donahue, come on, don't give me this stuff about the traditional family. It's only 7%. It's extinct. But it's a lie. That's what I mean by deception. Our world is full of fraud today. And that's what has replaced these great attributes of justice and purity and righteousness. Now notice it goes on in verse 3 to say what the effects are of those things now, these void fillers that have come in. It says in verse 3 that the land now mourns and everyone who lives in it, if I might just paraphrase here for a moment, feels overwhelmed. That's what Hosea says is coming to the nation of Israel. The people suffer. You know, they, they say that the 1980s has been the decade of addiction. Everybody looking somehow to fill the void of a generation has totally gone astray. And not only does the land, the people suffer, but the land suffers. Notice it makes this very brief mention of the beast of the, the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, they disappear. There's all this environmental damage. When man becomes selfish, he doesn't know how to manage his environment. And not only that, when man becomes selfish, God intervenes with things like droughts and famines and plagues and earthquakes. That's his way of signaling that he's disturbed about what he sees happening on a planet. The fourth part speaks to how people respond when they begin to sense this suffering is coming about, that they're somehow not pulling it together. And all of a sudden, as they begin to suffer, they begin to do what? Find fault? No. No one finds fault. That's what it says in verse 4. Somehow, it's not me and it's not you. No one wants to take the blame. And notice he goes on to say, and let none offer reproof. In other words, there's no accountability. You can't come up to Charlie as Charlie's cheating at the office and changing a few numbers and say, 
Charlie, that's wrong. Because Charlie will look at you and say, that's just your opinion, man. What are you talking about? Grow up. It's the 20th century. The reason for that is because there's no standard. There's no absolutes. Everything's relative. And when everything's relative, how can you have accountability? None. Offer. Reproof. He says. Well, it goes on to say that not only do they not offer reproof, but then they begin to contend with those who are in authority. Notice it goes on to say, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. You know, the priest in Israel was kind of the position of authority in that society. But when people start wanting it their way, they don't want anybody walking in and telling them what to do, how to do it. So the people contend, especially with religious authority here. You know, you speak up today and you're quickly put down as being someone who's religious. And if you're religious, you're irrelevant. Don't you hear that all the time? I can imagine Hosea over there in the corner on the sidelines quoting some of these words to the people and some of the local media in his city going, come on! Hey, we're not living in the religious dark ages of the 14th century B.C. This is the 7th century! Come on! We don't answer our complex and sophisticated modern day problems with moralistic cliches, with fundamentalist evangelical rhetoric. Get with it! We'll work out our own problems. And Hosea says, yeah. Maybe you need to take a look at the next two verses. Because in this last part of the lawsuit, Hosea says judgment is coming with that kind of attitude. Look at verse 5. It says, So you will, future tense, stumble by day. And the prophets, that is the false prophets who, who are haranguing in that culture, saying, hey, everything's okay. We'll do it. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just add another federally funded program. And the prophet also will stumble with you by night. See, life is going to get worse. That's what Hosea is saying. But then he adds this last phrase, I, that is God, will destroy your mother. Now, what is he saying there? Mother is a symbol. It was used back in chapter 2 of the same uh, letter as referring to the nation. So if you would, take your pen and just write nation. I will destroy your nation. And why? Verse 6, because my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You've rejected knowledge, and I'm going to reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of God, I also will forget you. You know, when I see teenagers sometimes get in little spats, when I see even my kids, they, they start agitating one another, and one of them will finally get so frustrated with the other that she'll go, well, forget you, and walk off. That's what God says here. Forget you. And he's walking away. Later in this letter, in chapter 13, he'll say, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against the very one who is willing to help you. It's to your destruction. Forget you. You see, Hosea has got his finger firmly on the wrist of America 
And He's taking our pulse. That's what He's doing. I think if God lined up all the prophets of the Old Testament, put them there in front of us, and God walked up and down that line of Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Malachi and Hosea and Moses and all the rest, thinking, who would I send to 20th century America who would be the most relevant with His message? I think He would choose this man. Well, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? How do you combat that overwhelming feeling? Well, let me give you two very real responses that you might jot down. I know some of you don't have an outline here tonight, but uh, you might just jot these down if you could. Because see, there are two very real responses here that you can have to an overwhelming society. And by the way, I say very real because everybody here will choose one of these two. You've already chosen them this past week. The first response is this. You can choose to step back in silence. You can become an evangelical monk and go into your ivory tower and retreat from your trouble. I believe there will be a lot of believers who will do that in the 1990s as they see things heat up. fact is, uh, futurist... George Barna in his book, The Frog in the Kettle, says this. Let me quote him. He says, During this decade before us, the church will be pressured from all sides to give up the battle. The intensity of spiritual warfare unraveling in our midst will accelerate. And each of us will find it tougher and tougher to muster the courage, the excitement, and the energy to combat evil. And so the temptation will be to step back and become silent. You know, we can learn from those who have gone on before us. We can turn back the clock just 52 years and place ourselves in Germany and look at the German evangelical church who stepped back in silence. You know, I find it interesting that 52 years ago, this very week of this very month, the German people woke up and discovered that 119 synagogues had been burned. They found out that 20,000 people had been arrested without cause. They witnessed a number of outstanding Jewish citizens pulled into the streets and publicly beaten and humiliated. And if you were at that time, you would have been shocked. The people had not been numbed yet. And so they were shocked and a, a large host, I think, were probably outraged at what they saw. And they looked to the church, that strong church, both Catholic and evangelical, and the leaders there to say something. But the evangelical church didn't say anything. And, and the Catholic church and its leadership said almost nothing. But I thought this German historian's insight was, was the best. He said, and I quote, the ultimate failure of the church lay not in the inability of church leaders. Did you hear that? But what was really missing was a spontaneous outburst at any point by ordinary, decent Christian folk. The people said nothing. The people drew back in silence. Would you write this statement down? If you don't remember anything else, write this statement and one other down. My silence is my approval of the things going on around me. 
doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter what you see. To walk away in silence is not neutral, but it is your approval of those things. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, and please hear me, that what I'm advocating is for you to shout and scream and yell and be mean to people and in regards to things that you don't like or things that you think are out of line ethically and morally, uh, to curse them with biblical phrases and to shake a Bible at them and, and those kind of things. I'm not suggesting that at all. But just like I don't appreciate people blowing smoke in my face, and I'm so glad somebody a few years back finally had the courage to step up and say, I don't like this. And we've changed, haven't we? Just like I don't like that, I don't like an abortion clinic in my neighborhood. I don't, I don't like that. And I don't like an, an X-rated movie playing around my children, even though it's called NC-17, but that hasn't changed anything. It's an X-rated movie, just of a different sort. See, I don't like that. And I don't like cheating at the office. And I don't like people to alter documents. And I don't like people from the church going around saying, I go to Fellowship Bible Church when their lifestyles are totally out of line with what this church believes. Hypocrites. So I don't like that either. And so i got a choice. I can say nothing, or I can stand up and say something. But if I don't, I give approval to all those things. Well, that leads me to the second possible response. A very real one. I can either step back in silence or I can step forward in courage. You know, I remember the first time that I went to Houston, Texas, to uh, visit my brother when he had become ill. He was going through the, uh, his, his uh, uh, pilgrimage with AIDS. And there came a place where he was going into the hospital for the first time really seriously ill with pneumonia. And he felt it best that my mother and I joined him down there. So uh, I drove down and picked up my mom and drove on to Houston. And we went there to the big MD Anderson complex and he was at North Park Plaza Hospital. And I wasn't sure where that was. So he told me that one of his friends, Kenny, would meet me and show me how to get to his room. And I never will forget when I walked up with my mom and met Kenny, that Kenny walked up to me and stuck out his hand and smiled very gently and said, Hi, I'm Kenny. I'm your brother's lover. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think that, that Kenny had been prepped by my brother that I was a, quote, evangelical pastor. And I'm sure Kenny had thought through very carefully all the different responses I might have. But here's what I want you to know about Kenny. I admired his courage. It took a lot for him to do that before my mom and me. It really did. But I find it ironic that as the gay and the lesbian community comes out of the closet, the evangelical community passes them by going into the closet. <laughs> you know, to say nothing, to be quiet. While they're going on an outing, we're going on an inning at the same time. And it makes no sense to me because that's not our calling. Let me ask you, do, do people at work know what you stand for? You know, I'm not going to stand next to a homosexual and crack 
gay jokes or a feminist and crack jokes about women. But let me ask you this. Do people stand next to you and crack all kinds of vile and filthy and immoral comments because they know you'll say nothing and tolerate everything? See, this is the world we live in, an evil generation. And somewhere along the line, the Christian is going to have to stand up in courage and be counted so that people will consider him and what he has to say or she has to say as well. Are you willing to look funny in front of people? Are you willing to, to be kind of someone who's persecuted on the sidelines because you don't cheat? And you will stand up for things like purity. And I know we have a lot of singles here tonight. Or honesty. Or justice. Or truth. Will you do that? When you're around certain things that are totally out of character with what is really right, do you step back in silence and approve? Or have you stepped forward in courage regardless of the cost? Here's what I need for you to write down. The second and final statement. Don't expect moral change in our society. Don't expect it without spontaneous acts of moral courage by the laity. I'll say it one more time. Don't expect moral change in our society without spontaneous acts of moral courage by the laity. And when you finally write the word laity, just put a little parenthesis by it and put in capital letters, me. M-E. I'm the laity. Recently, one of our church members was getting a haircut and as he was getting that haircut, he noticed that there was one of the Spectrum newspapers laying over in the corner in a rack of Spectrums. And uh, he and I talked this week and he kind of exemplifies what I'm talking about. Because I'm not talking about going out and joining a cause so much as I'm just talking about living the life. That's all. And he saw that, and, and, and by the way, I'm not against Spectrum, but I am against what it does to our community with those sex talk numbers blatantly advertised in the back. And he had heard me say that, and he agreed with me. But he saw those, and he thought, I should say something. And yet he struggled in, in, in what would happen if he said anything in the salon he was in. So finally he told uh, the girl who was cutting his hair and, and said, you know, I, I really don't like uh, some of the things that are in the Spectrum. And she said, well, hey, you, can't, you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to the manager. So when he finished his haircut, he went over and he picked up one of the spectrums out of the rack. And he kind of walked around for a few minutes to work up kind of the courage, as we all have to do, you know, and looking for the manager. And the manager kind of stepped out of the office, and he thought he would grab her so he could meet her in an office and just talk about it. But instead, she came marching out into the middle of the salon and said, in what sounded like 10 decibels higher, what do you want? You know, it always seems to happen like that, doesn't it? And uh, Ed told me, he said, you know, I, I don't know what would have happened if, if they would have really gotten hostile there. But he said, I proceeded forward in faith. And so I just simply opened up the newspaper and I pointed out those things that I felt offended by. I did it gently. I didn't do it as a Christian. I just did it as a concerned citizen. And by the way, that's the way we need to present ourselves everywhere as a citizen 
period, concerned in a democracy. So he shared that and she said to him, you know, you're the second person who's objected to this paper, which meant the first one objected and didn't succeed. But then she said, we need to get those out of here. That needs to change. Boy, I'd walked out of there higher than the kite, you know. Felt like he had, he had stood up and God had rewarded him. But you know what? There was a person who preceded him that stood up, got rejected. The point is not whether we're going to be accepted or rejected. The point is, is that we've got to live the life. That's the point. Now you may say, well, aren't you making a big thing about the spectrum? Well, it is just a little thing, isn't it? In the movie, that's a little thing. And that number, your, your, your uh, friend at the office changed. That's just a little thing, isn't it? And that lie you told, that's a little thing. And that person who just went out with that, with that prostitute on the business trip just that one time, that's just a little thing too. But you know, when you take those little things and you keep multiplying them, what it creates is the loss of integrity and kindness in the society. And that's what's taking place today. It's the little things. And it will be the little things multiplied by the thousands. Not, not giant rallies, not prominent authors, not a few heroic statement, statesmen. It is going to be the little things done by the little people, you and me, every day, in every way. Spontaneous outburst every time we run across something that's not right. That is what changes a society that is plummeting into an immoral abyss. That's it. You know, if you came over to my house and my wife served a beautiful meal, I don't bring out a block of salt to season it and say, here, season it. Because it won't work, will it? But you know what we're doing? We're waiting around for some block of salt to lead us out of the immoral abyss. But it won't. You know what seasons a society? The same thing that seasons a meal. Thousands of individual granules being poured out. Each one doing their seasoning effect. That's what changes a society. You know, I, I don't know if you saw this in today's paper. It's in many papers across the nation today. But there were a group of people just like that who were offended as they watched certain sitcoms on TV and saw a chain like Burger King advertising on these sitcoms that are clearly anti-family and have anti-family values. And they spoke up and they've been speaking up for several weeks. And I don't know if you saw this in all the major papers there across the country, an open letter to the American people by Burger King. You know what it says? It says, Burger King wishes to go on record as supporting traditional American values on television. And we believe the American people desire television programs that reflect the values they are trying to instill in their children. And so Burger King pulled all their advertising off those programs. Now that's a success story. Yeah, that's a success story. But let me just tell you, if everyone without a message like this, just spontaneously, when you were driving down Rodney Parham and you saw Henry and June, NC-17, if you walked up to the manager and just simply said, can I have a word with you? Not because I, 
you know, encourage you to do so. But if we just did that, 2,300 strong here we are. That's a lot of salt. I bet if he heard from every one of us, just not in a mean way, in a very gentle but forceful way, that offends me. That's not right for this community. It may be legally right, but it's community wrong. You know what I think would happen? I think it would disappear. And I think for sure it would disappear if we quit going and our children quit going. It's interesting that I got a call today and Dennis Rainey went and talked to the manager, Breckenridge. You know what he told him? He said, it's not a problem. It's not been controversial. Only two people have talked to me. Think about that. Only when we adopt this morally activist lifestyle, which, by the way, is what Christianity was to be all the time. Salt. Light. Only when we do that as a family. It's a family affair. Only then are we going to really begin to impact this community. We need to wake up. We need to become salty again. Last Thursday, ABC with Peter Jennings did a special on abortion. They entitled it America's New Civil War. Some of you probably saw that. But, you know, the civil war that's going on in our land right now, and by the way, it is a civil war. It's much bigger than abortion. It's a civil war much broader than that singular issue. And I think James Dobson in his new book, Children at Risk, I think he expresses that very well. Listen to what he says. He says, Nothing short of a great civil war of values rages today throughout North America. Two sides with vastly differing and incompatible worldviews are locked in a bitter conflict that permeates every level of society. Bloody battles are being fought on a thousand fronts. Open any daily newspaper and you'll find accounts of the latest moral Gettysburg, or Waterloo, or Normandy, or Stalingrad. Instead of fighting for territory or military conquest, however, the struggle is now for the minds and hearts of people. It is a war over ideas. And someday soon, I believe a winner will emerge and the loser will fade from memory. The war that is engaged here in America was fought in Britain in the 40s and 50s. You know, when the war was over in Europe, 75% of the English population attended church in England. If you go to England today, 2% attend a local church. See, the war's over there. Maybe it'll revive, but right now it's over there. The question is, will it be over here? And the only way to answer that is in your heart. Because there's an overwhelming lie that has permeated, I think, the Christian community in particular. And you know what that lie says? You can't change anything. It's too big. It's too overpowering. It's too vast. And you know what? You can't. Not alone. But as a family, we can. You know what? As a church, it's time to be a church. It's time to stand up. It's time to step forward and speak. It's now or never. And we will determine the outcome. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. 
You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.